The Guardian. For the past few months, The Guardian has been investigating the impact of immigration detention. In our survey, of the 188 people who were in detention on August the 31st, 2018, we found that the median length of detention was just over four months, despite the Home Office's claim that they aim to detain people for the shortest possible time. Nyaldwood is basically a long-term detention centre, and there are a lot of people who genuinely are extremely like depressed. And these are people who've been there for like a long time, three, four, five, six months, even a year, two years. And they've literally just reached the end of everything. They don't know what to do. But even for those who are released, there is little to celebrate. They are often left traumatised and fearful from their ordeal behind bars. Disturbingly, we also found that 84% of detainees surveyed had not been given removal directions, meaning that levels of limbo and uncertainty are worryingly high. Many are separated from loved ones and families without knowing what the future holds. I'll tell you what my biggest fear was. My biggest fear was that they would deport me and I would be away from him. The story you are about to hear is not unique. According to the UK Home Office, in 2017, over 27,000 individuals were held in immigration detention. And even though more than 50% were released, the ongoing effects can be devastating. Welcome to the story. I am a massive shopaholic, recovering shopaholic. <laughs> if I like something, I just pick it up. I don't really bother knowing that I have the same thing. If I just like it, I just, yeah, buy it. I've been born and raised from uh, Mumbai, and I came to London to study fashion. It's always been a passion, something I enjoy. It was just the second week that I was here, and I had to get a few essential bits and <laughs> as soon as I entered the shop, he was right there. A London boy, born and raised, and he was working in that shop. It was his uncle's shop. It was like a sort of typical, like a movie moment. I came out of the dressing room. This is what he tells me. I came out of the dressing room and I took off my hat and then I shook my hair out and he was just like, ta-da! This is the moment he tells me where it happened. I thought he was cute, as you do. You think everyone's cute when they're 23. But, you know, we were just chatting and then we just kind of kept talking and then we exchanged numbers. When I spoke to him on the phone, he was like, oh, have you had a look inside your jacket pocket? You know, maybe you've left something in there. Do you want to just have a look? And there was a little note in there which just said, stay beautiful and stay in touch. I think that was the ta-da moment for me, as sad as that sounds. Yeah, I still have that note. Um, it's a bit tattered, but yeah, I still have it.
we used to just meet up as friends, go out for like a meal or just for a drive or whatever. And then we genuinely liked each other. And then it kind of got to a point where we kind of had to have a conversation because of the religion. He's a Muslim and I'm a Hindu. And we knew there's going to be problems. So we kind of had to speak to each other and decide if it's something we really want to go through. Are we going to be ready to go as far as possible? I had finished studying. I did two degrees here. I did my master's here as well. I was working and we were living together. We'd moved in together. We both were very happy. But then my company was downsizing, so I was actually made redundant. And my visa was employee-sponsored by that company. I had made a visa application, which was in the home office, and it had been about nine months that it was with them. So I didn't think anything of it. And then I received a letter saying that I need to go to the reporting center. I said, fine, I didn't have a choice. So we went, my partner was with me. I went to the counter, I gave my paperwork and I explained my situation to the person there. And he said, oh, okay, uh, well, do you want to come with us to the back? They took all my stuff, they took my phone, they took my bag, they took my papers, everything. They just put me in a tiny room. I was waiting in that room for four hours with nothing. I had no clue what was happening. The window behind me was fully glass. So my partner was there. I was actually signing him, like, I don't know what's happening. And then this lady comes in and she's like, oh, we need to take you further in the back. They took me right to the end. They restrained me and said, we refuse your application. Then they lock you in a room, which is basically like a little prison cell. I was in there with seven men, the only woman. I'm so scared. I was shaking. I was sitting in that room till about seven. They didn't offer me a glass of water, anything to eat. I was the last person to be taken out. I was put in the back of a van, which was basically like a prison cell in a van. It had the iron bars just sitting there, like cooped up for two hours, still trying to process what had happened. I had never thought that I would be in this situation, so I just, I can't even speak, like, I just, I didn't know what to do. I've just woken up in detention in Yaldswood. I still don't know what's happening. I don't know how long I'm going to be here. It's difficult to set any sort of routine or understand what to do. Well, the bed is literally a slab of stone and the mattress an inch of plastic. So I haven't had a very good night's sleep. The thing is, I need to change my room because the person they've put me in a room with is from prison. She is a drug addict and she is basically meant to be kept isolated because of violent tendencies. She has attacked people in the past and a friend of mine who speaks Russian came to see me in the room 
Apparently, this girl told her, If you don't get your friend the F out of here, I'm going to cut her face off. There's nothing I can do. Everything that has to be done has to be done from either my lawyers or my partner. And that actually makes me quite frustrated because it's me and my life and my situation, but I'm still not in control of it. In detention, in the nights, they lock everything. About 9.30 was the last roll call for the night where they check if you're dead or alive, really. That's what they were doing. Because where else would we go? It's not like we'd be missing. Nyalsford is basically a long-term detention centre and there are a lot of people who genuinely are extremely like depressed and these are people who've been there for like a long time, three, four, five, six months, even a year, two years and they've literally just reached the end of everything, they don't know what to do. I saw people in wedding outfits coming in. They were just crying because they were picked up from their marriage in complete pieces. They had to literally be physically lifted because they were so shattered. The thing is, it's not done pleasantly. There's no pleasant way to do it, but they're just cruel. I mean, pregnant ladies came in. I know personally of two who, a couple of days after being brought in, they lost the child. I mean, they don't care where you are, what you're doing, they just literally grab you and they take you as if you're just a sack or an animal. You're not human to them at that moment. It was very difficult in the first, I would say, couple of weeks. But then, you know, it's just human nature. You get used to what situation you're in. And obviously you have to try and make the best of it and try and develop some sort of normalcy. You can make calls and stuff like that. That's the only way you can speak to people. None of my friends knew. Literally to them, I just dropped off the earth. It was just something I was not wanting to speak to anyone about. It was basically just my partner that I used to speak to. I mean, we speak quite often even now, at least three, four times a day. But there, I think we were probably speaking like 10 times a day. He was very worried that I would fall into mental depression. So he used to visit me in detention three, four times a week. That was my lifeline. I think if I was unlucky enough to be like a lot of the people there who were alone, they had nobody on the outside, I think if I didn't have him, I would have probably tried to do something. I'll tell you what my biggest fear was. My biggest fear was that they would deport me and I would be away from him. It was evening. Uh, we were in my room. Four or five of my friends, we were just chilling, chatting, you know, doing something for the time to go. And suddenly we heard like ruckus outside and I heard her scream when she jumped. 
We all came outside to see what's happening. The guards were physically trying to drag these women to leave. All the guards came, shoved us in our rooms, locked the doors, because they didn't want us to see. And I think that set everyone off, this mass hysteria that happened, because they can't do anything to mask the sound. They can prevent us from seeing, but we can still hear. Women screaming, don't take me. Just wailing, like crying and thumping. And when you hear them scream, you just imagine anything. It just built up where everybody was shaking. A couple of the girls in my room broke down. One of them threw up because she was so, like, <gasps> complete hysteria. I think everybody reached their end point in that moment. I was in detention for just under two months. I had a bail hearing and the judge says it then and there, like, I'm releasing you, the Home Office. They have to give you a paper saying why they've detained you. Apparently, they felt that my relationship wasn't genuine. It was a fake relationship. And the person who I'd referred to as my partner was just some fake person. I mean, if you just looked out the window, they would have seen him. It was literally that simple. I came here, I did two degrees from really big universities. I worked a job legally paying proper taxes. I didn't do anything dodgy. I don't have a criminal record. I was applying for the correct visas. But even now, I have this paranoia about me. They can just pick me up off the road and detain me if they want to. I think I went a bit nuts, if I'm honest, because I just kind of felt like anything I do, they'll just find out and use it against me, even if I'm not doing anything, because... That's what they have already done. Yeah, constant fear that they detain me again. I don't think I'll ever be able to let it go. I still get very riled up, upset. It's still fresh in my mind, as if it was just last week. Finally, she was released and reunited with her partner. After initially being accused of trying to enter a sham marriage, her relationship was eventually accepted as being a genuine one and she was granted leave to remain. But even though this is a victory, the damage has already been done. If you've been affected by any of the issues discussed here, organisations who might be of help include Detention Action, Medical Justice and Bail for Immigration Detainees. Contact details for all these organisations can be found in the episode's description on The Guardian website. This podcast was produced by David Waters. The executive producer for The Guardian was Max Sanderson, with additional help from Diane Taylor, Mark Rice-Oxley and Mustafa Khalili. If you want to find out more about our detention project, head to theguardian.com. And to find out more about our other podcasts, head over to theguardian.com 
forward slash podcast. For more great podcasts from The Guardian, just go to theguardian.com slash podcasts.